Jonah chapter 3, 6 through 10. Jonah had traveled roughly five to 600 miles from Joppa after the fish spit him out onto dry ground. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches. He only goes really a one-day journey. And as we talked last time, it's possible that he met with some leaders, but eventually Jonah preached the message. And the city responded. And I do believe that Jonah made the three-day trip. I do believe he went around and preached that message. But it did get to the place where it reached the king, the king of Assyria. And I guess what I want to talk about today is this. When leaders repent, that's where we're going first. When leaders repent. This is obviously set in in the realm now had made revival in the city but now the king is involved and notice what is in verse 6 the word reaches the king of Nineveh the word reaches the king of Nineveh this would have been Asher Dan the third his reign was roughly 17 years from 722 or 772 uh, to 755 B.C. And scholars are not really all that divided on who the king was. I think this was the king at the time that Jonah came. So the natural question is, what was his reign like? Well, he had a lot of omens and supernatural beliefs, spiritual beliefs. So here you have Jonah coming on the scene, and this word obviously gets to the king. There were international military failures. In in fact, Assyria had lost ground under Ashurdan III, had lost ground. Some of uh, uh, Assyria had been been captured. There was a long-going war, um, and the king had actually lost ground. There was an eclipse and an earthquake during his reign. Of course, what immediately follows earthquake is famine. So here you have a king right now who is a supernaturalist, if you want to call it that. He's failing militarily. There's an eclipse, and there was a major earthquake, and there was famine. But that wasn't it. There was rioting. There was rioting because there was no food. There was rioting because the king was failing. There was also a plague. So other than that, his reign was really good. (laughs) Other than that. So you could kind of understand why the king would now respond the way that he did. There was a national disaster taking place in his own country. Verse 6, And he arose from his throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Amazing. We are not talking about uh, a normal king, so to speak. We are talking about an Assyrian king who was known as an aggressive a powerful king, but even though his even though his kingdom was shaking, you still have a king who was godless. 
And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. His actions. He left his seat of power and humbled himself. You know, as I was uh, studying this, I thought about somebody else who left their seat of power and humbled themselves. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In, uh, in Philippians, it says he humbled himself even to the point of death. Jesus left his throne. Here you have an earthly king leaving the seat of power and humbling himself before his subjects. That's amazing. That usually, that usually does not happen. Usually it's a pushback against anything that belongs to God. He took off his royal robe. Most scholars agree that this robe was expensive. Gold and silver with a gold hat that he wore. He had to take this robe off. His, actually, what he's doing is he is removing his power. I, I was just struck by this because, again, this is an Assyrian king who's ruthless, who doesn't really care about feelings, does not care about the captives and, and how they are treated. And now you have this Assyrian king taking all of his power away because of the prophet of God, Jonah, and his simple message, yet 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed if you do not repent. Wow. <laughs> he covered himself with sackcloth. I'm wondering... I mean, this is really, in my own mind, this is mind-boggling. Because you remember, there were several reasons that you wore sackcloth. One of them was if you were a captive captured in war. Now the king himself is moving himself to the place of a captive, which he really is a captive. God's captive. He sat in dust. Kings don't sit in dust. All of this, scholars agree, and I agree with them, all of this was signs of mourning and repentance. And you remember last week I told you that there were some 30 or 40 years after this event, Nineveh goes into oblivion. I think the repentance was real on the Assyrian part. I believe that they had a come-to-God moment in this city, an Assyrian enemy of the nation of Israel is now in full-blown repentance. Wow. Shocking. So what led to this? That was a question that I asked myself. Okay, um, what led to this? And of course, you know, I like digging around and I like looking for information so that I can share with you. Well, one is, you remember, Jonah would have been bleached white by the whale incident. You have temperatures inside the whale of 105 to 110, maybe higher. You have acids from the whale that would have come in contact with the skin. So now you have Jonah who is bleached white, who is like a ghost going into Nineveh, and people are like, whoa, wait a minute. This guy looks like a ghost. And so the people are listening. This information had to have gotten back to the king. But I think there was something else taking place. And as I dug, I was right. I don't usually like to say that, but I 
I think I'm right on this. This is an eclipse. Now what I'm going to tell you is, it's a guess, and I think it's a pretty good guess. This eclipse probably preceded Jonah's arrival. How do I know that? June 15th, 763 B.C., in the 10th year of Asher Dan III, there was an eclipse. Here you have a king that has seen an earthquake, an eclipse where everything goes dark, and then you have this ghostly figure coming on the scene, and the king who is into omens and supernatural things goes, this has to be God. Right? This, has, this is too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. That they can nail it down to June 15th, 763 B.C., right at the height of his reign, Jonah comes walking, and God was, God was all over this. God was in this. He knew this. You could, you could put this as a thumbprint of God on history. So this king now, we've had... We've, we've got famine, we've got plague, we've got this earth, we've had earthquakes, we got an eclipse, and then, I believe, Jonah comes on the scene looking like a ghost, preaching the message. The king would have instantly said, okay, too many coincidences to be a coincidence. This has to be Yodehave. Elohim, the God of Israel. This has to be. Wow. It's amazing what a little digging can do. What we have here is we have a nation that is brought to its knees. It is brought to its knees by natural disasters, failures, all kinds of signs and wonders that are taking place. It is brought to their knees. You say, well, wait a minute. Can that really happen? I mean, can natural disasters or uh, some type of cataclysmic event bring a nation to its knees? Do you remember this? You remember that day? I was pastoring in Ohio, but I was also filling in at the high school for a high school teacher who was sick that day came over the loudspeaker that the Twin Towers had been hit. We didn't realize later that over 4,000 people would die in this event. Do you know what happened the next Sunday? Churches were packed. Do you know what was absent? Was all the division in our country. People weren't talking bad about each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Natural disasters, terrorist attacks can sometimes be a wake-up call from God that pulls us back into a place where we become dependent upon Him. And here the Assyrians, who were sworn enemies of God, were brought to their knees, were brought to their knees by situations that they could not control. And you know what? Sometimes in our own personal lives, 
Sometimes it takes a cataclysmic event to drop us to our knees where the situations and circumstances are too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence that God may be speaking. And this is exactly what happened in Assyria. I fully believe that Assyria was in full-blown repentance towards God. History bears it out. 30, 40 years, you didn't hear anything from Nineveh. You did later in the book of Nahum. But that was a while. I think they had brought, been brought to a place of full repentance. The king's decree. The king has repented, in my mind. And notice verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. That word issued is actually issued a proclamation and published is one word in Hebrew. It's zayak. And it means to send out an official written document with instructions and principles. Smith and Page are correct. By issuing a proclamation, the king added an official sanction to that which was all, that was already underway. In other words, the decree that the king uh, amounted to a royal seal of approval on what had already occurred spontaneous, spontaneously throughout the city. It became part of official government policy. Now the big question is, and scholars have argued this, if this was a full-blown revival, why is there no mention of it in the Assyrian records? Well, I can tell you a good answer for that. If you were a king two or three generations removed and you wanted to go, you see this part of history? We're going to block it out. Thank God we have the Bible because it's a written account of what happened. It's funny that this is the only period in the Assyrian time where there are no records. There's records in other places. That leads me to believe that there was some burning of shredding of documents. Which in and of itself would have been a... That's just... that's, Yeah. No. This really happened. This is what the Bible says happened. Jonah is not a, not a metaphor for something. This is a real story. This really happened. Thank goodness we have the Bible. By the decree of the king and his nobles. This is very interesting by the decree of his king and his nobles. Nobles didn't do that. Here's a little drawing here of, of the nobles talking to the king. The nobles didn't, they never put their stamp of approval on this. What this signifies, and I agree with Strout in his commentary uh, in the International Testament of uh, Commentary of the New Testament, he notes that this is a sign of a troubled king. Because these nobles were in charge of the regions. And to bring them in says that the king is in a weakened state and he needed to be pumped up a little bit. So the nobles were added into it as a way of saying, look guys, the nobles are all in agreement with this and the nobles are now helping the king, well you could say propping up his kingdom because they're in a mess right now. They're in a mess. This, this, is, this makes perfect sense that the king who is weakened, 
His son will take the throne after he's gone. But he wants to steady his kingdom, so he includes nobles. That does not happen. That does not happen. That did not happen in the Old Testament. So this is what scholars believe, is that the king was increasing his own power by bringing the nobles in. And then notice what he says in verse 7. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Okay, given the fact that there was a famine on, uh, it's good that the king did this, but there wasn't a lot of food anyway. Let them not feed or drink water. This is, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So the king is now extending this to the animals and let them call out mightily to the God. Elohim, Yodehave. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Of course, the Assyrians were known for violence. Violence towards enemies, violence towards one another. They were violent people. This is, this, this makes, this makes, can you think about this for a minute? This is a, an unbelievable grace message from God to a wicked and perverted generation. We're talking not in the New Testament where Jesus comes loving everybody and wanting all to come into the kingdom, but this is the God of the Old Testament, the one where we sit back and wait for it to happen, <laughs> for God to destroy them, right? This is the same God of the, Old, of the Old Testament and, of course, of the New, but here you have God reaching out to a pagan, godless society. And if you look at our world today, we're, we're very parallel to Nineveh. And you know who carries the message? You and I, we are Jonah. We are the ones who take the message to a world that desperately needs to know him. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Features of this edict or command. It was an extreme fast. Humans and animals. Humans and animals all invited into this. Wearing sackcloth, that was a sign of humility and repentance. But it's interesting that the king included animals. He didn't want to leave anything to chance. He, he, was, telling, he was telling Jonah and Jonah's God, I am, I'm covering everything. This is how mournful I am and how much repentance I'm in. I'm covering everything. I don't want anything to not be covered. We have to cover everything. I mean, most of you read the Bible, I know that. You've read the Old Testament. This is still mind-boggling for me that, uh, that, a, that uh, Assyrians are doing this. Mind-boggling. He tells them to earnestly call out to Elohim. That's Jonah's God. Not in this particular word, is God is Elohim. Still the one true God. Not Yodehave, but Elohim. And then, of course, turn from the violence. I like what Douglas Strout said in his commentary. Fasting and uncomfortable dress represented self-denial to the ancient Semites. 
by overtly shunning normal comforts and making themselves physically miserable. They sought to show the genuineness of their prayers for mercy. Mm. <laughs> they made themselves as possibly miserable and low life as they could to show God. So that, that, leads, that leads to a question. Can outward expressions reveal an inward condition? Like, for example, you hear a sermon, you may be in a revival, you hear a message, it hits you in the heart, you begin to cry, you come forward, uh, and, and you have an outward expression of that emotion. That's true. That can happen. But not always. You can have outward expressions without any inward change. It can all be show without the heart change. So the scene in Nineveh looks something like this. The people are brought low before Elohim, Yodehavev, and a prophet who had been spit out of a fish. That's all it took. Israel's probably thinking, if that's all it took, how we could have avoided all these battles, Lord. No, but there were too many things happening before this moment. God had a plan for Nineveh. He wanted to bring them to a place of repentance. And so many times in our lives, brothers and sisters, we need to look at what's happening in our lives to see if God's not leading us to a place of repentance and to be back in a good relationship with him. While we're on this subject, what is true repentance? What is true repentance? First of all, confess sin fully. And that means you go before God and you say, you know what? This is my sin. This is what I've done. You don't, you don't go, well, God... Here's some of my sin, but this stuff over here I'm, <laughs> I'm going to hide and keep for a while. That's not true repentance. Secondly, I think, stop doing the sin. True repentance involves action. It's, it's not only confessing the sin fully to God, but it's actually stop doing it. The king said, stop your violence and put down your evil ways. Put it down, let it go, get rid of it. We're learning this from an, from an Assyrian king. <laughs> Sometimes, true repentance may mean you have to make recompense for your sin. Maybe you sinned against somebody and you need to go to them and say, look, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I ask you to forgive me. That is always so hard to do for, for people, to say, I'm sorry. It shouldn't be. We should always be ready to say, I'm sorry. We should always be ready for that. Change our attitude towards sin. That's part of repentance. I don't think the king thought of any moment here where he could go, okay, now that we've got that over with, let's go back to business as usual. That didn't happen. History records there was nothing taking place. It kind of fell off the map. 
True repentance means we do things God's way. And I can see in here, I can see in here, true repentance. The king now, in verse 9, says this. Who knows? Here's the glimmer of hope. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I think the king understands it. I, I think the king, I think the I think God is in his psyche now. I think he gets it. And that's what repentance does. You get it. You get it. By the way, this sounds eerily familiar. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and turn from this disaster. Sounds a lot like Joel. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind do you not do you not under comprehend the magnitude of this you have a Ninevite king an Assyrian king who slaughtered thousands and by the way this also sounds like the Apostle Paul before his road to Damascus come to Jesus moment his life was changed this king is now speaking biblical words What happens when we do that? What happens when we repent? God will move. I know of no scripture where God will not forgive us of our sin if we repent. If you find one, please email me. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. The word saw, it may seem like a little deal to you, but it's a big deal to me. When God saw what they did, and by the way, God sees everything. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, raha. Uh, it's a qual verb. It has 14 different meanings in Hebrew. But I think what it means here is to see an object and make judgments based upon perceptions. So God looked down and he saw what had happened to these people. The same word, the same phraseology is used in Genesis chapter 40 verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were deeply troubled. The same word. God is looking down and seeing that they have truly repented. Do you know what's not mentioned here? This is, this is why I, I go back to what I asked earlier. Listen to this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. The scripture does not say when God saw what they did, putting on sackcloth, putting on uh, animals, putting all this stuff on. All he mentions here is, that they had turned from their evil ways. God wasn't particularly concerned with the external thing going on. He was more concerned about what was happening inward. And by the way, that's exactly the way we live in the New Testament. 
that God is more, he, God is not, God doesn't look at externals. He looks at internals. He doesn't look at the way we look. He looks at the way that we believe and act inside because that does come out. It, and it doesn't mean that, that people can, can have genuine emotion. It, it doesn't mean that. What it means is God, God sees what is in the heart. When Israel was looking for a king, God says, no, 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 no. Don't look at the appearance. Look at the heart. God is always concerned about the heart of humanity. God is concerned infinitely about your heart and my heart. Is it bent towards him? Are we loving him? Do we follow him? Do we want to be like him? That's what God's concerned about. He doesn't care about prettiness or, or, or what's going on externally. It can be that from the inward comes this, this gully washer of, of emotions and feelings. I'm not saying that can't be the case, but that's not what drives God. What drives God is, is this person meaning business with me? And God looked at the Assyrian king, those that don't think this happened, then you're in disagreement with God. God looked at this king. He looked at the people. He saw everything that's going on, and he goes, you know what? They turned from their evil ways. Wow. God's sworn enemy. And by the way, Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to them. God's doing good to Nineveh right now because God could have there's there's a verse in uh, there's a verse in uh, Joshua that I love God threw stones from heaven at the enemies of Israel I know why Jonah went up and sat on the hill and said okay here we go God's gonna dust you and God could do that Yet 40 days, Nineveh, you're done. No, nobody's too far gone that God can't reach down and pull them out. I don't care who the sinner is, or the vilest offender, God can reach and pull out of the mire. If you've got somebody in your life like that, please do not give up on them. God's arms are not too short that he can't redeem them. And... and by the way, God wants to redeem every life. That life was created in the image of God and he wants a relationship with him. And so our prayer should be, yes, they're vulgar. Yes, they're offensive. Yes, they're vile. But they need redemption. They need salvation. I, I love this story of how God just offered them redemption because it's the story of my life it's the story of me how God offered me his marvelous grace I wasn't as bad as the the Assyrians but I was still a sinner in God's eyes and he reached down and he grabbed me Elohim I love that name Elohim by the way, this is not a misprint. That's how Hebrews, how the Hebrew people write God. 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their cry. Nineveh, I hear you. I see you. They have dropped to the ground in repentance. Psalm, I think God is looking at Nineveh as his own. A sworn enemy of the nation of Israel who caused them all kinds of problems are now in God's camp. That's mind, That's fascinating. That's mind-boggling. Yeah, there was true repentance. Nineveh's going the other direction. Assyria, that tri-state tri area. Elohim relents. Elohim sees. Elohim relents. Nehom. Nehom. It has six different meanings in the Hebrew language. I think what it means here is that God changed his mind. God relented of a disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Again, God could have destroyed Nineveh, but he didn't. God changed his mind on the nation of Israel or on the nation of Nineveh, the Assyrians. How did that changing of mind come about? It came about by a choice offered to these people. Either you repent in 40 days or you'll be destroyed or you accept the message of God from the messenger of God and you will be spared. Is that not the gospel message today? There's two choices. Some people say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence. No, you're not. You're either not with God or you are with God. You are either in the camp of the lost or you are in the camp of the saved. Nineveh, and Assyria now, has moved in to the camp of God. Three quotes here. Alan Stewart and Smith and Page all combined. As the king and the people of Nineveh had hoped, God relented. No fire and brimstone fell on Sodom-like Sodom -like city after all. God pulled back his hand of judgment, though not forever. As prophesied by Nahum, I mentioned him earlier, Nineveh later experienced total destruction. There was a period of many years, 30 or 40 years, however, between Jonah and Nahum. Stuart said it well, when Nineveh repented, God relented. This is wonderful news for us today. Because no matter how far you've gone, no matter where you are in your walk with him, God 
will accept and forgive people of their sins.